presumably they didn't think things like a screwdriver and then they all file were something to be confiscated. No, no, I mean, what, what would you possibly think what to do would, with that? If what you would a prisoner of war look to use them for? Welcome to another episode of For You, The War Is Over, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. What is interesting in this one is the method that he came to be captured. Because whereas we've discussed before being overrun by the Germans or in most RAF cases being shot down, this gentleman was brought down by the weather. He was. He was. Which is not something you commonly read about. Equally uncommon to read about, that is, is that he was an NCO. And mm-hmm. we've mentioned in previous series that we mostly hear about officer escapes. So in this case, we've got uh, a young 20-year-old NCO by the name of Warrant Officer Gordon Thompson Woodruff of the Royal New Zealand Air Force, flying with 104 Squadron in a Wellington. So that's a bomber, is that right? So Yes, Wellington is a bomber with six crew, uh, twin-engined, fabulous construction called geodetic construction. I won't get into that too much, but it's a wonderful way to build an aeroplane. Is that the Barnes-Wallace? That is the Barnes-Wallace, yes. So basically it's like a lattice Mm. of formed aluminium and just covered in a big bag, basically. You would make it think that that would float, but it doesn't. So as you'll see in this escape. (laughs) Yes, so we're looking at the night in September 1941. It was actually on the way to bomb Turin, had successfully bombed Turin and was on the way home. Now he doesn't mention much in the escape report about what occurred here, but his book that he wrote later on by the name of Getaway does cover it in some detail and this is what I found very interesting so they actually returned from Turin on the way back over past Mont Blanc and they ran into a storm cloud and it's a big electrical storm and they were getting lots of arcing around in the aeroplane and thrown around as he says for hour upon hour mm-hmm. with all the instruments the radio had been destroyed by this electrical storm and the compass is spinning around and they were trying to navigate through all this cloud at night and they eventually got to the point where they were still flying the following day when it became daylight not a common thing no usually you've returned and landed usually early hours of the morning exactly so they're still there and they've still got just enough fuel and he was the second pilot was Gordon and the main captain got out to relieve himself because he'd obviously been flying the aeroplane for an awful long time and they noticed that when he got out the compass moved yet again and it was later discovered that he actually had his service revolver in the boot of his this is the first pilot the first pilot yeah had the service revolver tucked in his boot right next to the compass so then they had this realization they're potentially flown through hours in an electrical storm at night with a compass that's totally unreliable because it's being influenced by this large lump of metal within inches of it exactly so that must have been pretty downheartening particularly as they were then looking down in the early daylight to see that they're over water and everywhere they look is over water so they had no idea where they are and they're running out of fuel so he mentions in his book that they prepared to ditch and as they were getting ready to ditch the bomber in the water they saw two small fishing vessels Mm -hmm. and they decided to ditch next to those vessels not knowing where they were and they all managed to get out which was fabulous and they all got into the dinghy and uh, the boats came along and informed them that they were actually halfway between Denmark and England and if you think Mont Blanc (laughs) to halfway between Denmark and England in the North Sea Mm -hmm. is a very 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 long way to fly when you're in the dark in a thunderstorm with very very poor instruments they must have been absolutely shattered but that's how they came to be in the water and that's how they came to be captured by fishermen who I believe were very helpful to them weren't they? Yes so they were Danish fishermen who took them back to Denmark 
didn't speak a word of English and equally I can't imagine that uh, six New Zealanders speak all that much Danish either. So I, th- I think there was something of a language barrier and they were of course fairly well duty bound to take them back to Denmark. Upon landing at the port they were immediately placed under arrest. From there they were taken to a nearby German aerodrome where they were held in cells. Okay. And they were there for quite a while because they were being interrogated and they hadn't yet been taken to Dula Luft but they were trying to interrogate them while they were being held at this aerodrome. And during the time that they were at this aerodrome, Woodruff managed to make two escape attempts. Really? Early days. Good Early man. days and he has clearly set his stall out and decided that he was going to be an escaper from a very early moment. I like that. That's positive. So I'll briefly run through the two escape attempts. Neither of them got very far. So he had managed to keep hold of his knife, which his father had given to him through travelling from New Zealand over to the United Kingdom into Wellington. He'd had it with him through seven missions and he still managed to keep it on him even after his arrest. Now they had removed some of the blades on it, but for some reason they gave it back to him. Presumably they didn't think things like a screwdriver and a nail file were something to be confiscated. No, no, I mean what what would you possibly think what to do would, with that? If what you would a prisoner of war look to use them for? So, he still had that on him and he realised that while the cell was reasonably secure, the ceiling on the cell, which he had all to himself he had this empty cell to himself in which there were at least three bunks Right. So he basically used one of those bunks to lie directly under the ceiling oh. and cut a hole in the ceiling tiles. With relevant comfort. Yes, yeah, with relevant <laughs> The only thing he actually says is that because it made so much noise in the ceiling tile, he had to go very, very slowly. But of course, prisoners of war have time. They do have hands, time, yes. By definition. And so he managed to get himself up into the ceiling cavity yep. above the cells. And it turned out that it was a very, very creaky structure. Oh. And so he basically said he was standing on the framework, the wooden framework looking down through a, a hole in the roof into the corridor outside the cells and the guard was standing outside his door Oh no, really? And just as he shifted his weight, the guard looked up, they looked each other in the eye and the next thing he knew there was a rifle pointing at him <laughs> Nonetheless Which is, let's face it, is not unexpected No, 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 not at all. You not see your all. prisoner who's supposed to be in his cell actually looking at you through a hole in the roof. Something's up. Yeah yeah, exactly. And so, nonetheless, he, he still jumped down and basically kind of stood at the door as if to kind of say, well, let me in then. <laughs> you know, he, he was caught, so he, he knew that there was no running away, so he, he just kind of waited for the guard to open the cell. Now, this did create a bit of a commotion, and having had a fairly comfortable ride up to that point, you know, being left alone on the top bunk to cut a hole in the roof, he was then forced to stand to attention for hours on end and wasn't allowed to go down to sleep and, and what have you, but eventually that eased off. And so he decided to try and make another attempt attempt. Right. Because from his window, he could see the guards pacing outside. And he realised that when they were at the opposite ends from each other, they were actually going slightly around the curve Uh of the building. Yeah. And so he waited until they were in sync, turned around the curve. He'd been slowly working away at the window frame all of this time with his trusty pen knife. Trusty pen knife. And managed to open the window and make a run for it. However, he was again spotted very quickly and uh, he, he states that he discovered that the word halt meant the same thing in English and German. Oh, uh, which useful. is Yeah, very useful <laughs> lesson to discover within hours of being captured as a prisoner of war. So that was the last set of attempts that he made for, for a little while actually. Possibly because he had a very close eye kept on him. I can imagine. He's set to press to be watched. In, indeed, yes. And so having made those two attempts, after about three, four days, he was taken to Dulagluft. 
which regular listeners would know, yes, <laughs> comes up quite, quite frequently. Familiar with the concept of Dulac Loop, so we don't need to labour that point too heavily. And this was just the first in a lot of camps yes. that he was to stay in. He, yes, he travelled. So for the next three years, during which time he was a prisoner of war, he was to jump around at least six different camps. Mm. Any ones that we know in particular? Yeah, quite a few actually. So Lambsdorff, ah, uh, which we've come across before, and of course Stalagluf Three. Who wasn't in Stalagluf Indeed, Three? It seems. Yes. It's, it seems that quite a lot of prisoners of war at least moved through Stalagluf Three, even if they weren't there that long. Well, it was a big camp that was expanded wasn't it so it was it would make sense that throw them in there until there's a space somewhere else yeah exactly so it seems from this guy's escape report that he was a bit of a schemer okay he was involved in a number of escape attempts throughout the time what ones that he helped with the planning and execution of but didn't actually go out A, a little bit yes but also he was actually involved in at least two further escape attempts himself okay and as part of his scheming, he actually managed to successfully change his identity completely within the system of the prisoner of war camp. Now, we have heard of people doing that to protect themselves for religious reasons or for just being able to change ranks so that they can be put in a situation where they're likely to be out of the camp more in working parties. But, I mean, he already was a fairly low rank, so it can't have been for that. And I'm not sure he was likely to be persecuted for any particular thing. So what do you think would have made him or inspired him to do such a thing? No, you're, you're right. He wasn't a particularly high rank and equally the person whose identity he changed with was a corporal, so wasn't a particularly high rank himself. Mm-hmm. Now, the process by which he has changed his identity is quite convoluted. It's quite complicated and complex. Okay. Because he managed to switch identities with one person, a Corporal Hardy, who in turn had already switched identities with a Sergeant Allenson. And so, in effect, the net result of this was that the original Sergeant Allenson and Gordon Woodruff escaped under the assumed name of Corporal Hardy. Both of them. Both of them. Oh yeah, that th- no, that would be confusing. That yeah, that would throw the guards off the scent it's, a little it, bit. It's throwing us. <laughs> yeah, it's throwing, exactly. And, yeah, so and, and so the purpose of changing identities is clear to see. Yeah. Okay. So that's unusual. So you've got two people escaping under the assumed name of somebody else within the camp system as well. So mm-hmm. I mean, we already know that there are errors within the German paperwork system that have been picked up down to initials and or ranks and things mm-hmm. like that. But now when you start changing people's identities around it's going to cause some confusion and it, it absolutely will and of course part of the purpose of that was at the point when they realized that they were down on numbers and had to work out who it was that had escaped having changed identities or having someone appear who's under a different name that doesn't match the photograph that they have in front of them will give the escaper extra time yeah, to get confusion away. confusion is going to bring about extra time yes absolutely yeah. because it would take hours to go through the thousands of prisoners of war yeah even with all the hundreds of guards there were it would take a long time to process all the paperwork to work out who the two people were that were missing okay so i mean that it does make perfect sense in the escaping person's tool bag is to swap your identity buy yourself some more time yes so having been a prisoner of war for about 18 months by this stage in may 1943 he made his next escape attempt so this is escape attempt number three mm-hmm. following the first two in the cells straight after he was caught yeah he then bides his time for a little while 
he basically states that he spends some time essentially listening and learning. So he, he openly admits that he was maybe a bit hasty in his first attempts, that he wasn't prepared. And even if he had got away, what would he have really done? Right. And so he starts speaking to those who have been on the outside, who have escaped, been recaptured, brought back, listening and learning to what it is their experience has told them. I kind of think of this as almost like a self-perpetuating cycle of escape intelligence. Right. You know, the information feeds back, the idea being that once the information is back, it gives the next person a better opportunity to succeed. Of course. So on and so forth. And as more information and understanding is developed through greater experience, the information and intelligence feeds back to the prisoners of war to assist them next time. Yeah. Those that were recaptured were obviously asked a lot of questions. And there's a lot in this escape. He openly admits came out of the conversations that he had. So, for example, he escaped with the intent to steal a bike. As many did. As many did. Around about 15% of escapes, give or take, were involved in... Bicycle theft. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And one of the key reasons he states why this was his intent for this particular escape attempt is because one of the escapers that had been recaptured and was in his block stated that while he was on the bike cycling along, there were very few attempts for anyone to try and speak to him, to stop him, to check for his papers, even at paper checks. He was quite often just... Wave through. Wave through. And so this kind of stuck in Woodruff's head and it became his intent to steal a bike at the earliest opportunity. So at this stage, he's detailed to a working party at a place called Jagendorf. Nowadays, this is Kurnov in Czech Republic. Okay. The working party had been billeted in a factory and was working there. And while he was working there, he had replaced the deadbolt on the door with a fake one, allowing them to just push the door open and replace it with the correct bolt. Now that's interesting because that was also done in Colditz. Mm-hmm. with a glass bolt mm-hmm. on a trapdoor. You could just push against it and it would crack and break. So, Which is essentially what he did. Yeah. Interestingly, the first night that he was planning to attempt an escape, he fell asleep. One would have thought the adrenaline would be running if you were about to try and escape, but evidently not. Well, in the book, he actually basically states that his biggest irritation about this was not the missed opportunity, but the amount of ribbing he had to take for <laughs> it the next day in the working party. <laughs> in some ways, this escape actually exemplifies the difference between the levels of security that surrounded officers and levels of security that surrounded the other ranks. Okay. Because he states that the only guard was a night watchman who passed by every hour. Oh, really? So essentially, you have 59 minutes in which to make an escape if they then notice that you've gone even because if indeed because yeah. he replaced the deadbolt after he left so he essentially pushed open the door reattached the original bolt and closed the door behind him nice so it didn't look like anyone had escaped at all but it does exemplify the difference in the security measures that were put in place for officers versus other ranks mm. and shows why there were such greater opportunity for escape amongst the other ranks should they wish to pursue it Wow. Going back to the change of identity is part of the reason why officers would sometimes change identity with another rank, a lower rank. Yeah. Yeah. So for this escape, he prepared for himself his clothing, his outfit, and part of that was made up of army trousers that he dyed black with Dubbin. Now, I thought this was actually quite interesting because on the one hand, Dubbin did change the colour of his trousers, which Mm -hmm. if you've got khaki trousers, you probably do want to change the colour. But also, if you're travelling cross-country, Dubbin would, of course, make it waterproof. Yeah. So it's actually quite a smart move to do this. Yeah. And as well as the trousers, he also had a filling coat to wear as well. So between all of that, he was able to blend in reasonably well. And bear in mind, he was travelling cross-country by foot to begin with until he found himself a bike. So over the next seven days, having got away around about 10 o'clock at night, he travelled in a southwesterly direction. And at the end of this time, he managed to steal a bicycle 
tentacle somewhere in the Ark Fraudenthal. Now, Fraudenthal is now Bruntal in Czech Republic. Okay. In that week of walking, he'd actually only travelled about 30 kilometres. Right. Which is not particularly far. It's not. Well, I guess he's looking to head towards Austria, Switzerland, that sort of direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just in general, walking 30 kilometres in a week is not a particularly fast pace. No. By contrast, in the week that he had a bicycle, he managed to cover the distance of 520 kilometres. That's a big difference. Yeah, so it does give a very clear and distinct idea of the difference between walking cross-country. Admittedly, he was going quite slowly and stealing the bicycle and the opportunities that stealing the bicycle offered you. Because bear in mind, sure, a train is faster, but you also have paper checks. You have to of course, source money, tickets. show papers, yeah. etc. Yeah, so... Well, that's right, because he has no money on this escape so far. Exactly. A bike is almost the, the ideal form of transport for him at this stage. Okay. I mean, just following on from points that we've made before, and it does die a little bit we've obviously seen in previous escapes a lot of input from the escape committees and things like that to ensure that people had paperwork money maps etc did that necessarily exist as much in the nco camps because it sounds like he's gone out and he hasn't basically got anything he has got no papers or money or maps or anything in particular so was it a particular trait that escape committees existed more in the officer camps and were more set up to help people so escape committees did exist in the in the camps of the other ranks Absolutely they did. And certainly they were able to assist. It's also true that there were some officer camps. It just wasn't a particularly escape-minded group of people, so they never really bothered. So it's not one rule for one or the other, particularly. I think the key difference is the officers had time to organise themselves. I see, because the NCOs were potentially out on working parties. and Exactly. Yeah. With that, they were able to get organised, they were able to spend time making forgeries far more easily than uh, the lower ranks would be able to. So that is probably the key difference here, rather than the opportunity for an escape committee to exist in one camp or the other, depending on rank. It was more the opportunity to actually escape and focus on the minutiae of escape. The officers had the advantage over the other ranks. Interesting. Okay, so he's basically on his own trying to get away yeah so he's managed to steal a bike as i say in freudenthal and he's making pretty good going he's he's got himself to helinsko and there he was stopped by two members of the gestapo now he states they asked me who i was to which i replied in german that i'd come from Polichka. they then said that i was doing good work and let me pass on so although he was stopped by the gestapo while traveling on a bike here it is really a good sign when you are stopped by the gestapo his ability to at least speak rudimentary german and communicate has helped him here oh yeah it's made a huge difference if yeah. anything we've seen we've seen that in other escapes the ability to speak a local language or even a language that the locals don't speak proves helpful yes absolutely and so although he wasn't actually asked to produce his papers he did actually have an identity card on him which i think he'd made himself actually ah right okay so cycling on and by this stage he's heading towards Austria he's making pretty good distance at this stage he runs into a frontier patrol however he managed to avoid them and carried on into Austria itself narrowly avoiding a large German barracks and his ability to avoid the Frontier Patrol actually kind of reinforces the point about cyclists managing to avoid being stopped in general. I see. However, having got into Austria, he does get stopped on a bridge. Now, he knew he would get stopped when he tried to cross the Danube because it's just it's an unavoidable geographical natural landmark. And of course, bridges are a natural funneling point and so are often used as paper checkpoints. Mm -hmm. So having been stopped trying to cross the Danube, he actually has to talk himself out of it again. But this time, the guard actually goes through 
through his pack and really checks to see what it is he's carrying. And he essentially has to justify all his escape food by saying that he's taking it to his wife who lives a couple of miles down the road and he's, you know, he's he's supplying her with food and making sure she's well fed and all in his escape clothes or she, I'm taking them to be washed by her and all this sort of stuff. And ultimately he actually has to sort of bribe the guard. He asks the guard, will you be on duty tomorrow? To which the guard says yes. And he says, well, we've got a lovely orchard in our garden. I'll bring some apples for you tomorrow. And the guard just sort of waves him through. Nice. We haven't come well, across we, that before. It would be nice if he wasn't lying through his teeth. So as he carries on, he stops just outside a public house, a guest house in, I suppose, mm. to pump up his tyre. Okay. So while he was pumping up his tyre, a policeman came out and asked to see his papers. Now, he tried to pass himself off as a Frenchman. However, the policeman went back inside... Treatous French-speaking ex- local... Well, a Frenchman, actually. Oh, that is always... And we've always said that would be the downfall of somebody when you try and pass yourself off as something that you're quite obviously not... It would only take somebody fluent in that language or from that actual country to call you out. In the past, we've heard people spouting Urdu or Gaelic or what have you, which are less common languages in Central Europe. Trying to brazen it out by speaking French is maybe not... The wisest. The most secure route. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, to be fair to the Frenchman, Woodruff did try to explain to him that he was an Allied airman okay. trying to escape, and the Frenchman did try and help him. However, the policeman's suspicions overrided the efforts of Woodruff and the Frenchman and he was taken off to local prison and on his way he basically gave up the ghost and admitted his true identity I mean that's a shame because he'd been on the run for a good few weeks he had yeah he'd been on the run about two weeks by this stage so Mm. he spent seven days on foot and then seven days on a bike and then totally travelled around about 500 to 550 kilometres over that period Mm. so he's gone a fair distance and admittedly Switzerland was still another 500 kilometres or so away from where he was arrested so he still had a long way to go but he got about halfway yeah now there is an interesting detail in his escape report here that i want to pick up on okay he states during the past 14 days i'd lived only on the ground up biscuits and porridge i brought up with me from the camp now he doesn't explain much about this in the escape report but in his book he goes into a lot more detail about this right and it's actually inspired by a robert louis stevenson book really now he doesn't state which one but i have to assume it was kidnapped Okay. It's actually one of my favourite Robert Louis Stevenson books. Not because it's set in Scotland, but it is an, it is an excellent book. And so he, he basically says the inspiration for this was the Highlanders used to carry around what was called a mealie bag, right. which is essentially just a bag of oats to which they would add water and make your porridge. Make your porridge. And by virtue of not having to hunt for it and able to carry it, and of course oats go a long way, they could essentially guarantee themselves food at any time fairly high in calorie, fairly high in energy, low weight. So you weren't carrying a lot of weight for the amount of sustenance you got. Yeah. And so he took inspiration from this book and developed this ground up biscuit and porridge combination to eat with him while he was on the escape. Nice. Having been arrested, he was, of course, taken back initially to the nearby prisoner war camp, but having refiltered back into the camp system, he was eventually taken back to his former camp. So over the winter of 1943 to 44, mm-hmm. he actually makes a concerted effort to kind of build himself up a little bit. Okay. I mean, that was a cold winter. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It was an extremely cold winter. However, he managed to get himself detailed onto a working party shoveling sugar beets. Now, that in and of itself is not particularly fascinating, but the advantage of that was it wasn't overly strenuous work, but it was fairly well fed. And so by virtue of doing this work, he was able to build himself up, get quite strong, 
not be emaciated and in a physically capable condition to attempt another escape. I see. Which is precisely what he was planning. Now, what isn't clear is why his ultimately successful escape attempt, his fourth attempt, was so different from his previous relatively successful escape attempt. Okay. Because I said earlier that the third escape attempt was based a lot on the information he had garnered from the escapers that were back in camp with him. So things like travelling by bike, you can cover long distances without being stopped, that sort of information was filtering through. By this stage, he is in a camp in Albersdorf. Nowadays, that is still in Germany, and it's in a municipality in the Görlitz district in Saxony. Okay. Very close to the border of what is now the Czech Republic and Poland. Yeah. It's very mountainous around there. Yes, so while in Albersdorf, there was quite significant involvement of the escape committee, which we of course discussed earlier, and he ends up getting paired and partnered up with a private Glasnow. The Glasnow was a Palestinian Jew, oh. similar to Gevelber, who we've previously discussed. Yeah. And again, similar to Gevelber, who went under an assumed name of a Welshman called Gilbert. Yeah. Glasnow is operating under the assumed name of Freddie Johnson and claims to be an Australian. Okay. What's interesting about Glasnow is Glasnow cut a deal with Woodruff. As he was a native German speaker, he would do all of the speaking while on the run. And so the deal was that Woodruff would be responsible for collecting all of the escape kits. So everything from clothes, wallets, hats, scarves, gloves, papers. Scrounging. Scrounging everything. Now one of the interesting details that he did learn from his own previous escape attempt was one of the reasons why the policeman was suspicious is because when he did pull out his paperwork, the wallet was empty. Oh, yeah. Because that wouldn't make sense at all. Not at all. Everybody's got stuff in the wallet. Exactly. What (laughs) in Operation Mincemeat they called wallet litter. Yes. So things like tickets, stubs, receipts. That's right. uh, Letters from girlfriends. Photos of loved ones. Exactly. So there was none of that in his wallet and that's why the policeman was suspicious of him when he arrested them in Austria. As well as all the clothes, papers, etc. He also went about scrounging wallet litter to fill the wallet so it looked like it was actually used. Nice. And in order to collect all this escape paraphernalia together he actually built up quite a significant wealth in cigarettes. Which of course were common and trading currency within a prisoner of war camp. Now, the way he did this was by playing craps with the Canadians. Okay. So there was a big block of Canadians who had been captured after the ebb that were in the camp with him. Yeah. And so he'd go over to their blog and there'd be seven or eight different craps games taking place and he would alternate between them over a couple of days and slowly but surely would just build up his wealth of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. He then used that to start buying up the paraphernalia he needed for his escape. Now, the relationship between Woodruff and Glasnow is quite an interesting one because they certainly weren't close but there seems to have been at least a degree of respect between them. Okay. Now, it's interesting because Woodruff talks about how he'd seen previous escape attempts fail because they didn't get on, they fell out, and they'd end up arguing in English or just generally would go off by themselves and get recaptured. Right. And so he made a concerted effort to avoid this, but nonetheless, I certainly got the impression they weren't especially close. Okay. Now, Glasnow, like Gavelbar, had fought in Crete. And again, like Gavelbar, had taken to the hills in Crete when it fell. However, unlike Gavelber, who was fighting with the RAF, he was actually part of the Palestinian Corps, and he was determined not to be captured as a member of the Palestinian Corps. Obviously, yes. For reasons we discussed on Gavelber. In Gavelber's escape, yes. As hostile as the hills in Crete were, which was of course the reason why they gave themselves up, had he been captured as a member of the Palestinian Corps, his reception would have been no less hostile, of course. 
And so that is why he presented himself as an Australian soldier. Right. And he built up this entire persona. He had a fake army number. He'd given himself a rank, a name, all this sort of stuff. He'd really built up this persona so that when he was captured and presented himself, he was able to present himself as an Australian soldier. Sorry to interject here with a question. Go ahead. If that was instigated upon capture a false name and a false rank surely with the red cross overseeing prisoner health and monitoring things if they'd had a prisoner turn up and say i'm so and so number so and so they're obviously going to go into their records surely that would get checked back and a discrepancy would come up so this isn't explained at any stage in the book or the report i strongly suspect he stole the identity of a dead soldier basically i've no proof of that but the fact no suspicion was raised by the Red Cross suggests to me that it was a real person whose identity he had stolen. Right. The advantage of that was as he was processed by the Germans as a prisoner of war, that became official identity. Right, okay. Now, part of Woodruff's efforts to get to know Glasnow a bit, as I said, they seem to have a relationship of respect, if not quite liking each other, but they did at least make the effort to try and get to know each other a bit, the backstory and and what have you. And as part of that, one of the questions he actually had was, did he have any issues with this false identity? And in actual fact, he said, not from the Germans, but only from suspicious British prisoners of war who suspected them of being a stool pigeon. Ah. Because, of course, Germans wouldn't necessarily know the difference between an Australian accent and any other accent speaking in English. Yeah. I'm not sure I could pick the difference between a German accent and an Austrian accent. So there's no reason to assume that they would know the difference between a British accent, a New Zealand accent, and an Australian accent. No, but the Brits certainly would. But we certainly would. That's why they were suspicious of him. So although he was based in the camp at Albersdorf, and his working party was based in a place called Ziegenhaus. And while there he'd been informed that it was worthwhile going to the Baltic docks to try and get a ship over to Sweden. Yeah. Now, this is a fairly common escape route. Not an easy one, but a fairly common one. However, by this stage of the war, the three major ports of Rostock, Stettin and Danzig were fairly heavily bombed. Right. And so he is advised to go to Wismar, one of the smaller docks on the Baltic. It's still fairly large and significant, but one of the smaller docks on the Baltic coast. Now, that does relate back to sort of learning information from other escapees who have made these attempts. But interestingly, for this one, he'd also managed to gather together 370 Reich marks, which he'd accumulated over time. Now, whether that was from the escape committee or just from bartering, trading, whatever, is unclear. Yeah. But nonetheless, he has managed to gather together some money. And this is significant because it meant that he wasn't trying to travel by foot or on bike, but he was able to take a train to Wismar. Now, I said earlier that heading for the Baltic docks wasn't necessarily a bad idea, and he's garnering information from others who have tried it. However, I did think this was quite an interesting choice of destination, given that their location... I said earlier that the main camp was near the border of Poland and the Czech Republic. Okay, even allowing for occupation, he is very close, if not actually in, to friendly countries where he may be able to receive help. Yes. However, he chooses to travel through Germany to the north coast of Germany to the Baltic docks. Okay. So given the proximity he is in, and in actual fact, the satellite camp that he is based at from the working party in Ziegenhaus is actually in Poland. So he's choosing to go back into Germany and travel on the train through Germany to a Baltic coast on the German coast rather than receive help from the locality that he's based in. Interesting thought process. Mm. And I think that's especially interesting, bearing in mind that had he travelled on foot or by bike as he had previously, he probably would have been able to receive that help and actually still make a 
fair distance on bike, for example, mm. without having to go through the lottery of getting the train, having to show papers, buy tickets, potentially yeah. stay in hotels, yeah. all of this sort of stuff. It is a conscious decision that they have made, possibly influenced by Glasnow, who, as I said, is a native German speaker. Yeah. But nonetheless, this is a conscious decision that they have made in spite of the advantages of the locality they're in. And so to the escape. He escaped on the 17th of August 1944 at quarter past ten at night. Now there was four of them in the escape attempt. Two sets of pairs, him and Glasnow and a private Mullock of the Royal Signal Corps and Private Scott of the New Zealand Army. Right. Now Mullock and Scott went off by themselves. Okay. So in essence they were escaping from camp that wasn't particularly heavily guarded so that again they just they essentially jimmied open the window and went through the window okay they were spotted however in the commotion glass now realized that he'd left behind his papers oh and his jacket woodruff and glass now attempted to try and recover the papers and glass now even ran back to the window to try and get them back However, in the panic, one of the other prisoners of war had grabbed his papers and thrown them in the fire. Oh. Now, the reason for this was he assumed that the guards were going to come rushing in and inspect the room and all this sort of stuff and find the papers, so he threw them in the fire. Yeah. However, it then meant that Glasnow was outside the camp with no jacket and no papers. So having realised this, that they had no choice but to either go back into the camp or carry on, they decided to at least make an, an attempt at it and carry on. Mm -hmm. However, because they didn't even have a jacket, they actually ended up going essentially back to Ziegenhals, which is now Guhowatsi in Poland, which is where the working party was. Yep. And they actually went back to the location of where they had been on the working party and hid in that area because they left a note for one of their fellow prisoners of war, basically saying, can you get hold of a jacket for glass now? Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. And they ended up waiting three days because they escaped on the Friday. For a jacket. For a jacket. Left a note on the Friday, waited the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and on the Monday, they of course came back on the working party to the information that they had no jacket to help them. Wow. So they hung around for three days, eating their food and making absolutely no progress whatsoever for the sake of no jacket. Okay. So by this stage, they're forced to walk to the nearest train station, whether they like it or not. So having been forced to walk to the nearest train station, Glasnow was quite a resourceful individual. Mm -hmm. Now, the way Woodruff describes it is Glasnow disappeared off for a while and about 20 minutes later reappeared with a nice working man's jacket. Evidently, Glasnow was quite light-fingered in those 20 minutes. And so at least one hurdle was overcome. Right. At this stage. So but they've sadly wasted days. Days, yeah, exactly. Although, the interesting thing about that is, is that whilst they've effectively been outside of the camp for three, going into four days now, it's certainly not come to the attention of the Germans that they've left. Because surely if it had been noted that they were no longer in the camp, they would have sent out a search party. And the fact that they're quite close to the, the working party area, you would have thought that would be covered as part of the searches for them. So It's okay. not a bad question, actually. I would actually argue that the searches had gone beyond where they were hiding during those three days essentially within they removed the search perimeter mm. every 24 hours effectively once the perimeter gets beyond you you're actually kind of safe again yeah as long as they weren't caught within that 24 hours 
essentially no longer search for because you were assumed to be further away. Yeah, of course, yeah. I'm actually of the mind that that's probably what happened is by hanging around, they actually managed to fade the net. Mm -hmm. The train station that they walked to is a place called Nysa. And from there, they buy two tickets to Brislau, which is about 90 kilometres away. Yeah. So they got on the train at about quarter past 11 at night on the 19th of August. So this is a couple of days after the escape. Mm -hmm. However, just as they were pulling out of the station, they had their first and for Woodruff only check of papers. Now, of course, we've already said that Glasnow had no papers and was immediately arrested. Right. Now, as part of their getting to know each other conversation, Glasnow did open up a little bit to Woodruff and actually states they had a brother in a concentration camp. Oh. However, Glasnow himself was officially registered as an Australian name. under a different name. Yeah. And so, as far as they were officially concerned, and all the paperwork would have backed this up, he was an Australian called Freddie Johnson. So I have tried to do some research on this and I haven't been able to find anything either way as to whether he survived as Glasnow or as Freddie Johnson. We have to at least hope that by virtue of the fact that he was registered under a false name, a false name that would have protected him fairly well, assuming he didn't give up his real identity, yeah. we have to hope that he did go back into the prisoner war camp system and survived in the prisoner war camp system. I get it, yeah. Nonetheless, being arrested on the train would have still been an extremely dangerous yeah. situation for him. And as I say, we hear nothing further of him in this escape However, Woodruff's papers, by virtue of having papers, did pass inspection. And so he managed to get to Breslau the next day. So in Breslau, he booked a ticket for Wismar and boarded what he believed to be the Berlin Express. However, at some stage, and he didn't quite pick it up because of the, the garbled static of the announcements, he actually missed the fact that it had been diverted to Halle instead of Berlin, which is about 400 kilometres from Breslau and about 180 kilometres away from his intended destination of Berlin. Oh dear. Yes. However, because he's bought a ticket for Wismar, ultimately all he has to do is just make his way to Wismar. He doesn't need to pay for all the perambulations around Germany. He just needs to get himself onto the correct train. At Halle, he then catches the Hanover Express with the aim of getting off at Magdeburg. Now Magdeburg is about halfway between Hanover and Berlin. However, he falls asleep again oh, no, and goes really? all the way to Hanover. Oh. So he's now about 220 kilometres from Halle and 290 kilometres away from Berlin. So he's not even getting close to his intended destination. But at least there was no one there to rib him for it this time. Yeah, exactly. So once again, realising his mistake, he caught the Hamburg train from Hanover and this time managed to get off at Ludwigsluft and boarded a train for Wismar, which is about 70 kilometres away from Ludwigslust. So having arrived in Wismar, he has now travelled a total of 1,250 kilometres while travelling around the German Reich for what is in actual fact a 640 kilometre journey as the crow flies. So this does kind of indicate how much of a difference all his various, as I say, perambulations created for him. And in actual fact, he could have journeyed a lot more easily to Wismar and yeah. avoided a lot of hassle. But nonetheless, he has made it to Wismar. But it's interesting because the previous paperwork check was the only one that actually came up so he did all of that traveling mm. without being checked yeah so having now arrived at Vismar, he attempts to try and chat to some local foreign workers assuming that he would receive help from the foreign workers these particular foreign workers were french now woodruff does speak some french reasonably well well we know that from previously when he was caught down in austria exactly yeah 
And the first set of Frenchmen that he approached basically told him he was wasting his time and that he should head to Rostock, being a more major port. And there was not a lot of Swedish ships that came in here. And so he actually started walking in the direction of Rostock. But while he was heading out of Wismar, he came across a Frenchman who was chatting away to his girlfriend, saying goodnight, and he got chatting to them Mm -hmm. and explained the situation. And they essentially said, well, we can't help, but we know someone who might. So he took him to his acquaintance, a, a guy called Victor. Now, Victor's the only name that we're given for this person. Okay. He was essentially a press gang Frenchman foreign worker who had been forced to join up as a worker for the German Reich. Okay. Now he accepted this, but he also swore that he wouldn't do a single day's work for the Germans and spent many years self-inflicting harm upon his body precisely with the purpose of avoiding doing any work whatsoever. He would do things like smash his finger underneath a brick so he'd break his finger. Oh. He would pour hot fat on himself. He would go to extreme lengths to avoid doing a day's work for the German Reich. And I actually kind of admired the dedication. Wow. I'm not sure I would inflict such self-harm upon myself, but I respect this guy. Yeah. And so by virtue of the fact that he was in one of these workers' camps and didn't do a single day's work, so never actually went to the docks or anywhere else that they were forced to work, he ended up being a black marketeer. Yeah. Okay. Who knew a lot of sailors. Of course. Because that's who he traded with. That's yeah. how he got contraband in and out of the country. And scarce contraband at that, because of course Sweden was neutral. And so they had access to items that were not readily available in Germany. And as a black marketeer, that's precisely what he's looking for. Hmm. And so these Frenchmen do give him some help. They took him down to the docks and sort of directed him in the right direction, pointed out some Swedish ships. And he manages to sneak in by waiting until a group of sailors were walking towards the gate and pacing themselves so that he walked through at exactly the same moment as they did, got waved through by the guard, and then walked off once they were through the gate and headed towards a Swedish ship. That's a good move. He went up the gangplank and walked straight into the ship's cabin, despite the fact that there were sailors on deck. So they all follow him into the cabin, which is precisely what he wants, because he doesn't want to discuss the fact that he's an escaped prisoner of war on deck with Germans. Of course. He goes into the cabin and they follow him in. So he starts having a conversation with them, explaining his situation and asks them to help. And they effectively say that they are willing to help him, but the captain's a bit drunk. And so they won't be able to speak to him tonight to get permission for it. Right. They advise that he goes back to his French friends, stays the night with them, and come back the next day. However, that night there was an RAF air raid on these docks, Mm -hmm. and in actual fact he very nearly got heavily bombed out. And so the camp where he was staying with the Frenchman was actually quite heavily bombed by accident. It wasn't intentional, but bombs will land where bombs land. Yes. And the, the law of the land at the time stated that any German civilian could order a foreign worker to do whatever was required in a state of emergency, which of course an air raid would be. Bombing would be. Yeah, yeah. So he needs to avoid that because he cannot afford to be found out because if he is found to be an originally an airman who was a bomber he will effectively be lynched yeah and i mean quite literally he would be lynched he would have been a hate figure and they would have killed him so he essentially has to hide out away from the camp that he's just been sent back to he almost leaves the town and comes back in the next morning he then goes back to the dock which is almost untouched and he does say in his book that he quite enjoyed the irony of the fact that the whole point of bombing Vesmar was to hit the docks, which of course were important docks. Yeah. And they had barely touched the docklands, but they'd hit all of the town itself. Now, the reason why these were important docks is because German coal would be traded with 
the Swedes and it was Swedish iron ore that was coming back. Yeah. And so the Baltic docks trading with Sweden were hugely important to not just the German war effort, but the German economy and all this sort of stuff. So they had to keep the docks open. But of course, this presented an opportunity for Woodruff to escape. It. Yeah. And so while the whole point of the bombing was to hit the docks, it was a stroke of luck for him that they <laughs> missed it completely yeah. because if it had been hit, he may not have been able to get on board a ship. Yeah, completely. I think he would have enjoyed the irony of it, though. <laughs> Possibly not at the time. No. But <laughs> no. Certainly later. So having returned to the same ship, he is once again informed. Captain was still unfit to see him, which I think in modern parlance is tired and emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to save that one. I, I quite like that. And so in the absence of the captain being tired and emotional... Tired and emotional. Exactly. Yeah. The unilaterally decided to stow him away anyway. And so they gave him a bit of food and stuffed him into the bulkhead underneath the cabin, which he was to end up hiding out in for well over 24 hours. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. First of all, there were, of course, inspections of the ship. It would make sense for the Germans to check to make sure nothing untoward was going. Absolutely. And in actual fact, I think I'm going to quote him here. So the ship called on the 26th of August and that day the Gestapo came on board to make their routine search. I heard them talking overhead and just as they were about to come down the gangway towards my room my helper started bartering with them. The sailor here is distracting them from completing their searches by starting to barter for cigarettes and what yep. have you. Which relates back to what I meant by having contraband. So they, of course, had these uh, scarce items that were readily available in Sweden but were not in Germany. Yep. So the sailor suggested that he should exchange some cigarettes for a bar of soap that he had. And after a bit of bartering, they effectively accepted 10 marks for the soap. Okay. And so his ruse was essentially to head off to his own cabin to go and get the soap and took the Gestapo away with him. Yeah. So quite clever. Very clever. But also, I have to assume that 10 marks for a bar of soap at this time was quite a good price. The ship set sail at 1400 hours or 2pm, yeah. but only travelled for about half an hour. She then anchored in the entrance to the harbour, sheltering from a storm. That night, the RAF dropped mines on oh. the harbour. <sighs> He's not having much luck, is he? His, his, his old muckers in the RAF are really not helping him out that much, are yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. So the next day, they ended up having to wait with 17 other ships while the mines were swept by the German minesweepers. Mm -hmm. It was the day after that that the captain was suitably refreshed enough to be informed that he was now aboard. Now, cleverly, this Swedish sailor in question took him on board. So there was a group of Swedish ships that were all kind of sailing together out of this harbour. The captain so they all gathered on one of the other ships. So he took him over to that other ship so that he effectively informed him about Woodruff's presence on their ship in front of the other captains. Now, of course, the other captains were a few snaps to the wind by this stage and were, if he wants to come on my boat, on board my ship, I'll take him. So effectively using peer pressure to get their captain to agree to take him. Now, to yeah. be fair to me, he did and had no issue with it whatsoever. And eventually they set sail the next day on the 28th of August and landed in Sweden on the 29th of August 12th days after escaping, reaching Stockholm on the 30th and reporting to the British legation there. So he was to stay in Stockholm for a little over a week and actually ended up flying back to Lukers in Fife. That's actually quite a short time scale. There was a number of people who stayed for a lot longer than that in Sweden. Yeah, he only stayed for nine days, so he returned to the UK on the 9th of September. Within three weeks of escaping. escaping. Yeah, exactly. That's a good, good return. Yeah, absolutely. In actual fact, he states they had to wait a couple of extra days because technically under international law at the time, they couldn't fly military flights over to Sweden 
they had to fly Boac. Yes. And the previous Boac flight had been shot down over Norway by the Luftwaffe. So they had to wait a couple of days before they could actually take him back. Right. So as we always do, we always try to do some research on their life, who they were before and after they escaped. Yeah. See if we can find any information. And of course, as I've said already, Woodruff did publish a book called Getaway. Now, by virtue of that, we actually have quite a lot of information about him and his life. Mm. And so I think it's worth covering a brief potted history of what he got up to. Oh, completely. After his escape, he was seconded to the New Zealand reception team for returning prisoners of war coming back to the UK after liberation. Yes. So we're talking about 45 here. Yes. And for that, he was based in Brighton. And he was actually working out of the Grand Hotel. Very very, well known very hotel. famous hotel. Yes. And while he was doing that, a warrant officer Woodruff declared themselves as having been liberated from a prisoner war camp. Mm -hmm. This was, of course, the individual that he had swapped identities with a couple of years previously and was still living in the prisoner war camp system as Warrant Officer Gordon Thompson Woodruff. His real name was Corporal Ian Hardy. Now, of course, Woodruff knew Hardy from their time in the camp together. However, while he was based in Brighton, he met a student teacher at a dance called Violet. And in September 1945, they got married. Yeah. After the war, they returned to New Zealand. Previous to the war, Woodruff had been a student teacher. He'd been training to become a teacher. He decided not to take that up Mm -hmm. and actually became a farmer and worked as a farmer his entire life. Okay. Eventually, 30-odd years later, selling off the farm upon his retirement, and he and Violet decided to go and travel around Europe and revisit some of the places that he'd visited. His old haunts. His old haunts during his escape. And one of the places they visited was the in-house where he'd been arrested in Austria. Oh, yes. And he went inside and spoke to the barman and said in German, I'm ordering the pint that I didn't manage to order 30 years ago. And the barman replied, said, oh, yes, you had a bike, didn't you? No. Woodruff, of course, was a little bit struck dumb and said, how on earth did you know that? And his response was, the arresting officer was my brother. Wow. Did he get his pint? I think he did. Yeah, that would have been a fair cop to have got the pint. Yeah, exactly. So he managed to get his pint. So he did. Do you assume that as part of the rest of his European adventures, he made any other acquaintances or visited anywhere? So we know of at least two people that he managed to reconnect with. Reconnect with, yeah. yeah. So the first was one of the fishermen from the Danish fishing boat that originally picked him up in the North Sea. Oh, wow. Great. So he managed to make contact with them, but the other one that he managed to stay in touch with was actually the Swedish sailor who had hidden them away, and he managed to make contact with him again back in Sweden, and it actually made the local press. Oh, wow. So there was articles about them reconnecting 30 years later after the escape. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure there were others while he was travelling around. Yeah. But, but those two stood out in particular. Well, that's amazing, because I, I, I had a look, and I couldn't... I couldn't see anything much other than there was an obituary for uh, him passing away in July 2000, which seems relatively recent. It's 20 years ago now, but uh, yeah, you know, he had a he had a good a good run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his book was published in 1998, so he managed to survive another couple of years after the publication. How old would that have made him? 80, 80. thereabouts. Yeah. So, uh, and it's great that he got it down in the book because it fills in so much more information than what's available in the report. Yes, um, absolutely. And, as we've seen, there are many comments in these things that just pass oh, this happened and it actually misses out weeks in yes. some cases yeah. of information so uh, it's a riveting r- riveting book there it's a, a good story yeah i'd thoroughly recommend anyone who wants to find out a bit more about this escape to get a copy of his book and give it a read 
Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.